Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi and welcome to our fourth session of Islamic Book Reviews with myself, Dr. Sam Al-Azami and Dr. Omar Al-Shasi. I'm sort of a member of the University of Oxford and uh, Omar is a member of the University of Edinburgh. Um, and this is a sort of session where we basically discuss recent, usually recent books. We are thinking about some sort of older books, older texts as well in Islamic studies in the sort of Western tradition of Islamic studies, as it were, so in Western academia. Although, Omar, uh, you have mentioned that you're interested in potentially looking at recent texts that have come out of uh, sort of the Arabic. Yes, well, we'll revisit that uh, later on in the session when I talk about next week's book, inshallah. Inshallah. So just very briefly, I, I usually explain that Islamicate book reviews, uh, the title Islamicate is drawing on, for those familiar, Marshall Hodgson's uh, sort of coinage of the term Islamic describing aspects of Muslim societies that were not strictly sort of tied to its religious identity and its religious scriptures and so on, but were in some sense connected to it, some sense related to um, Islamic identity. And in order to make that distinction between the religious and the cultural, uh, in a sense, he coined the term Islamic. And so that's what we're kind of doing with extending uh, you know, his metaphor to inc incorporate uh, Islamic studies as a field. And this week's book is one that both myself and Alma are very excited to talk about. We both actually read it as soon as it came out a few months ago. Um, and Omar, of course, uh, you know, being the one who does the heavy lifting in these sessions, has reread it completely <laughs> in the last 24 hours. And I've reread much of it uh, in that process. And this is Ahmed Shamsi's rediscovering the Islamic classics, and Omar will kindly hold it up for us. Um, yes. the, the subtitle is How Editors and Print Culture Transformed in Intellectual Tradition. And I will hand over and, to Omar. Uh, published, I should say, by Princeton University Press. I think it came out in, we received our copy, Ustam and I, in April or something after the lockdown right. began. So I think the lockdown disrupted distribution and uh, yes yeah, I, I think it may uh, have come out around february march but uh yeah. i guess um and the other i mean the other thing to bear in mind about these sessions is the format um will start start us off you know in a sense giving a an overview of the text in about 10 to 15 minutes uh, after which i will engage in a discussion with our um in in sort of like uh quite a lot of detail potentially this time because we both have read the text and um, that would hopefully be 15 to 30 minutes, roughly. In the meantime, people are welcome to send in their questions um, through the comments. Uh, you can basically write them in, whether you're joining from Facebook um, or YouTube in the chat bars. Um, I believe on Twitter, which broadcasts through Periscope, may also have that option. Um, and finally, <clears throat> we'll sort of spend the last probably 10 to 15 minutes on that before sort of talking briefly about what would happen next week. And we always welcome your questions, um, but we apologize if we can't always get to all of them in advance. And just a final thing before I hand over, please, um, those of you who are interested in uh, sort of joining us each week, um, please feel free to subscribe, uh, follow or like, depending on the platform you're using for this. Um, with that, I'd like to hand over to Alma. So please, after you. Thank you very much. Uh, there are a lot of things happening in this book. And in many ways, it, it, uh, it complements uh, Shamsi's first book, The Canonization of Islamic Law, which did talk about Islamic law and did look at Egypt in particular quite a lot, uh, but examined more broadly the transition from a, an oral to a, a, a written or a manuscript culture. And this book, uh, resumes the story, as it were, in the modern period by exploring the transformation, again focusing on uh, Egypt in particular, but other Arabic-speaking countries, in, uh, including Iraq and also bits, bits of the Levant and so on. Uh, it explores the transition from uh, a manuscript to a print culture. And uh, Shamsi focuses primarily on the personalities, uh, some of them known to scholarship, others more or less forgotten nowadays, uh, the personalities involved in, uh, in some sense, reinventing the canon. People who transcended and uh, in many respects undermined the post-classical tradition of, of scholarship and the, the narrow textual horizons of post-classical 
uh, Islamic scholarship and uh, explore texts from an earlier period and through all kinds of labors. They sacrificed a great deal. And for me, Emerge really is the heroes of the book. Um, a range of people, uh, men, until the second half of the 20th century, when women begin to play a role in, uh, in the editing and then publication of, of uh, classical texts. Uh, men of diverse motives and uh, coming from different perspectives, although it's quite clear most of the people involved in this activity were either those from a non-religious uh, education background, those without a background in, in uh, a madrasa or, or religious college, um, or and as well as uh, important roles played by uh, figures such as Tahar al-Jazairi, who had a grounding in the post-classical tradition, but were also quite uncomfortable with aspects of it and uh, were critical of it. Uh, so this is a, a broad and ambitious book, uh, and it looks at how, uh, this is in fact how it begins, many of our ideas about what is the canon of Islamic texts, whether in disciplines like law or history or grammar, uh, are really gr grounded in uh, the transition that happens as a result of this period, how Muslims, in particular in the Arab world, he, he doesn't really extend his argument beyond the Arabic-speaking world, and in particular Egypt, uh, the Levant and Iraq, uh, and what changed, how Muslims interacted with their literary heritage, um, what, what were the kind of logistics and the networks and the uh, processes involved in the rediscovery of this heritage, uh, and its editing and its, its, its uh, publication. Uh, and he, he looks a lot at institutions, in particular the creation of uh, modern libraries uh, in, in the Middle Eastern context. And he also talks quite a lot about uh, shifting patterns in, uh, in Arabophone culture that result, well, result and also in a kind of feedback loop contribute to this change. So not only many of the editors, but at least in the uh, mid-19th century, when religious works begin to be printed in Arabic in, in quite a serious way. Printing, of course, begins in Egypt in 1822 with the Bulaq Press, but uh, its output for the first two decades or so is uh, actually mostly not, uh, not Arabic texts, and, and most of them are quote-unquote secular texts, um, textbooks and, and translations of various European works. Um, initially, when religious texts begin to be printed, uh, especially once the, the Bulak press allows its, uh, its use to be rented out to private individuals, um, the religious texts that are first printed are part of this post-classical um, scholarly uh, vision of the heritage. And that begins to change in the second half of the 19th century. And uh, once it does change, and many works introduced from the, the classical period, which I should say, uh, I, I should speak about this um, periodization. Yeah. Yes, but for Shamsi, the post-classical is uh, really the 16th to, you could say, the early 19th century. So you're talking in the Arabic-speaking lands about the Ottoman period, essentially. And uh, the classical period is everything from uh, roughly the 8th century to uh, to around 1500 or so. Um, and Shamsi makes uh, many critical observations or has many <laughs> criticisms um, of uh, post-classical learned culture. Some of them are to do with the, the kinds of epistemological hierarchies that privileged various forms of so-called inspired knowledge. Uh, and also the prevalence of Akbari and Sufism. I mean, at least in the, in the views of the editors, this was a problem. Um, and he, he also criticized the very narrow textual horizons and the impoverishment of libraries in, in countries such as Egypt uh, during the Ottoman period. Uh, so the vision of scholarship that we have today, the kinds of texts we might read, the kinds of Arabic books you might find in a bookstore, whether you go to uh, I don't know, Rabat or Cairo or Istanbul or even Delhi. Uh, these, there, there, there is a canon. You know, wherever you go, you'll find 
Nawawi is Riyadh al-Salihin, or Bukhari Sahih, or some Ibn Taymiyyah's Mazmu'an al-Fatawa, and so on. And, and the creation of this canon is uh, a historical process that uh, Shamsi analyzes at great length, and he talks about personalities uh, and, and processes and, 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 and how the, the culture of, of editing changes from 1911 or so. The, the editor, now referred to with the term muhattik, is a clear, kind of has a clear persona and role introducing the text and talking about different manuscripts their edition is based on. And uh, finally, Shamsi does talk about ways in which uh, this new editorial culture is both influenced by and in, in some respects departs from uh, the, the Orientalist standard established, especially in the 19th century. Uh, initially, most of the consumers of these newly printed texts were uh, bureaucrats in new state institutions and government uh, ministries, and also those involved in, uh, in the state uh, production and dissemination of knowledge, school teachers and so on. Uh, but of course, later on, Alam affiliated with this post-classical tradition do do kind of become more more heavily involved, and uh, this process utterly transforms the landscape of scholarship. It transforms what people uh, understand to be the canon, and practices of reading also change radically, and horizons broaden. I think. Uh, uh, I mean, there, there is a great deal more I could say by way of summary. Many very compelling portraits of individual editors, uh, some, some practically unknown to scholarship, uh, but I think we can, we can begin our discussion. And there's also, quite, there's also quite a lot of um, portraiture in a literal sense, in the sense that you have these uh, photos and images um, sort of uh, adorning the text. There are a lot of um, illustrations, so to speak. Yes, of... which is fantastic, and it really uh, brings this world to life. Right, right. In, in a way that isn't very common in, in our sort of like work very often. Um, yeah. Thank you. I mean, I think, I think that that's really a sort of um, a wonderful overview of the text. And uh, in, in many respects, I think, um, as I say, uh, you know, my own recollection of this is a mixture of my reading of about, uh, you know, through sections of the text over the last 24 hours, and also uh, my reading the entire text um, about three months ago, I would say, maybe four months ago. So not as early as mm. you had read it. In fact, it was on your recommendation that I, I got my hands on the text and I read it. I, um, I should add one point uh, before we begin the conversation, which is really, uh, I, he alludes to it, he discusses it explicitly, and it's, it's always there in the background. This uh, comparison with the process of discovery and publication of texts that happens in, in the Renaissance in, in Europe. Uh, and so you also have, uh, and he discusses um, Greenblatt's the, the Swerve, for instance, which is a very, also very compelling and, and exciting, exciting book. Sorry, which um, text of this is, is this a Greenblatt? Uh, this is about the rediscovery of uh, a particular uh, Lucretius's poem, uh, De Rerum Natura, on the order of things, and he, he talks about, uh, the whole book is about the preservation and, and, and the hunt for this manuscript and how it becomes published. So right. this book is, is, is um, there is a kind of micro-historical element, but he does zoom out and give you the big picture as well. So he talks about the individual publication of many texts, right. uh, many of which we take for granted as classics, such as Tabari's Tafsir, Shafi's uh, Um and, and so on. Um, so it's just it's a very rich book. Pick up on uh, your point about Jonathan Green. It's Jonathan Greenblatt's book, I assume. Um, the U.S. literary theorist. Stephen, uh, I think it's Stephen. Stephen, uh, yeah, it's forgive me, it's, yeah, it's his book. But anyway, that's that's just a side yeah. point. Yes. And of course, uh, the this revolution does have uh, implications also for the Arabic language, much like figures in the Renaissance who were um, uh, inspired by the, the pure Latin of people like Cicero, um, the, the, the so-called pure Arabic of people like Ibn Khaldun and, and, and uh, figures even earlier. Uh, the study of rhetoric is revolutionized by the publication of works of uh, uh, Abdul Qahir and Jurjani and so on. So uh, 
all, I mean, the, the implications for Arabic culture are enormous. This is a transformation. It's, it's a revolution, you could say. I really appreciated the fact, um, I mean, the way in which he actually sort of illustrated this. And so many of us who work within these texts are not aware very often of the nature and the, you know, the, the scale of that transformation. In a sense, you know, as he puts it in, in the early parts of the text, that, you know, you walk into um, a sort of a seri- into a bookshop in the Middle East and you see on the shelf uh, the books of Ibn Taymiyyah and the books of, you know, Shafi's Kitab al-Um and all of these sorts mm. of Ibn Kathir's um, tafsir and Tabari's tafsir and all the rest of them. And you think, well, you know, these have been around since the authors wrote them. Right? Everyone's been completely familiar with them. But basically, he's suggesting that they've actually not been on the shelves. I mean, he has these poignant quotes from uh, Al-Jabarti saying that, you know, these are books that we are only read about. We have no access to any of these. Right? Yeah. And, and uh, I mean, it really gives you a sense of, you know, the, they were actually living in a very different literary world than the one that we live in, the, the one that we take for granted you know, for myself as a Muslim, the one that in many respects shapes my sense of what Islam is, their sense of Islam was radically different in so many respects, I think. Yes, and, and uh, I think <coughs> Shamsi is not explicit about this, or, the, or Ahmed, I should, I should use his first name. He's a friend um, of <laughs> But I mean, Frequently, you find words, and I, I was listing them mentally when going through the book uh, the second time. Words like uh, Baroque, like narrow, mm-hmm. uh, scholasticism, which is a term he says is not used in a pejorative sense, right. but combined right. with the fact that these scholars <laughs> had such narrow textual horizons, talking about the uh, those working in the Ottoman period and, and Arab lands in particular, Egypt. It, it's hard to not see it as as condemnatory, in some sense. Yeah, um, and that's fantastic because <laughs> the book validates my prejudices um, <laughs> about 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 this period, and it's always very comforting to see you know an amazing scholar so, so um, <laughs> furnished evidence for one's prejudices. Yes. So this is one of I, the. I should say. Go ahead. I, I should say, of course, uh, we all bring our own assumptions and backgrounds to a text, and the, the author of the text is not responsible for that, because, of course, that colors our engagement with, with what we read. So I, I take a particular thing away from the text, and so does Usama. But, I mean, at the same time, and I've kind of signaled this to you in the past, that you know, I, I feel that that potentially detracts from this work a little, in the sense that, um, you know, uh, and, and the term... Used a term which I sort of found a little unusual um, in my first reading of the text, uh, translation of the term insaf went attributed to Ashokani. He translates it as objectivity, which has a very distinct uh, history, I think, in European positivism. Um, I, I think that there are sort of, you know, as I discussed with you, you know, just before we started, there are heroes and villains in this work. And well, that, that, that's, we should say that's our interpretation of it, but for me, it's very clear that. In yep. Most of the people involved, uh, I, this was a real labor of love. The, the amount of effort and time and money and Absolutely. effort that went into the publication of some of these works Absolutely. Uh, is is tremendous. And yeah. I, for one, am, you know, for me, the book really brought home how great, how much we owe this this class of scholars and editors, right, unsung right. heroes, really, because so many of them are unknown in, in modern and, and occasional villains, of course. I mean, some of these portraits. <laughs> portraits of- <laughs> People, I mean, who I've I've had my run-ins with, so to speak, as I've mentioned before. So I really liked the way in which um, Ahmed sort of dealt with uh, Kebsari in particular. So Muhammad Ahd al-Kebsari, or Kothari as he's known in Arabic, um, is one of these, you know, Ottoman figures who, uh, you know, he basically is willing to, um, in in sort of the way that he uh, portrays him, and I I. I I have had a smaller, more limited experience in my own sort of et- efforts to sort of look at work of Ibn Taymiyyah. So, you know, in fact, Ibn Taymiyyah comes up in the discussion of Kefsiri that, um, you know, he is willing to, in some respects, um, really uh, pr- produce tendentious uh, sort of citations. And some ki- in some cases, he had an encyclopedic knowledge of, you know, the Ottoman uh, collections of manuscripts. He was a very senior yeah. scholar. Obviously, towards the so, sort of, uh, 
end of the very important to acknowledge. Uh, so Ahmed does clearly recognize Kothari was uh, was ex his extreme erudition. Um, and he uses the word deception uh, or deceive or something like this in characterizing some of his work. I mean, I, I, I don't think I don't recall uh, Ahmed using that term in particular. But I mean, I, I think in some respects uh, that could be one way. I mean, I I struggle with this a little in in a, a sort of project of mine, hopefully published in June, um, where I'm looking at sort of scholars who haven't engaged in sort of the the most upright moral behavior, perhaps, uh, according to, I mean, I certainly think that there were problems in, in the figures that I'm studying. And, um, but at the same time, I try and interpret their sort of like work as being, you know, they're trying to uphold some kind of standard, which they firmly believe in, but they can't, they don't think they can be honest about, so to speak. And it results in this kind of, you know, uh, I think uh, upholding of a noble lie, as it were, which I think is very problematic. And that's what we see yeah. in, way in which um, Kebseri engages with the tradition at times yes. because, you know, yeah, because he's committed to this post-classical tradition. Yeah. yeah. And Kothari is a curious figure because unlike many of the uh, scholars in the post-classical mold, he right. is somebody who is heavily involved in, in the, the, the editing and publication of texts. You know, we have right. many, many excellent uh, editions of, of early works uh, by virtue of his, his efforts. Right. Um, and that does, in this period, make him somewhat unusual because post the scholars in this mold tended to be a bit slower to embrace right. this this model of uh, of uh, scholarship, you could say. Um, yes. uh, the, and the book does discuss Ibn Taymiyyah quite a lot. And he, I, I remember this morning he characterizes him as arguably the most influential classical scholar in the modern period. Which is and there is a, an, yes, I mean it's um, it's a defensible claim. I mean, if, if you look right, at the right. the the extent of Ibn Taymiyyah's um, corpus that's been published, I mean, there there must be few of his works still in existence that haven't been edited. You know, we're talking many dozens, right? Um, and have exercised um, made the role. I know John Hoover, uh, the great uh, among other hats, Taymiyyah uh, scholar. Right. Uh, Ibn Taymiyyah scholar said that in Egypt, you know, when he was uh, studying Arabic, he, he looked around to see what people were reading, and it was Ibn Taymiyyah, and this inspired right. his decision to, to right. uh, devote some of his time. I mean, there, there has always so I, I spent some of my time studying in Syria, of course, and you know, around 2005, 2006. And um, I remember sort of conversations with um, fellow students, in some cases, very senior students or scholars themselves, and uh, you know, that. Their view of Ibn Taymiyyah was very sort of jaded, so to speak, in, in the way that you'd expect from a post-classical tradition or post-classical perspective. Yes. Um, and, you know, views that he was an anthropomorphist and so on, which are part of the things that, in you know, part of the, uh, as uh, Ahmed would put it, sort of propaganda pervaded by people like um, Kevseri and others. Yes, and uh, someone like Ibn Hazr al-Haytami, who... Right. Shamsi uh, Ahmed shows wasn't really breathing. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. 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 So yeah. you you made this. I want to return to this point you make about uh, Insafa's objectivity. Yeah. One of the things Ahmed does in the book um, and shows others doing in the book. I should emphasize that dimension is um, people like uh, Ahmed Sakir. Uh, try to show that there is an indigenous tradition of philology. It's not, yeah. you know, invented by Orientalists in the 1800s or something. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it does share some priorities of, of the kind of Western academic approach. And of course, on, in other respects, it diverges. Right. And uh, this is part of the reason why the rediscovery of figures like Ibn Taymiyyah um, is so exciting for these figures because they, they of course, harness... Uh, often, uh, particular texts for their reformist uh, or in the in the in the service of their reformist effort. Right. And Ibn Taymiyyah, he he calls um, he, he describes rather as uh, bibliographically rich right. and intellectually daring. So these broad scholarly horizons, you know, Ibn Taymiyyah as a model of uh, erudition, as a model of how to argue, not not even necessarily the content of his particular arguments, because many of the of the figures involved in this editing process were quite Catholic with a, with a lowercase c, 
in, in terms of the kinds of texts they edited, Ibn Sina and Ibn Rushd and uh, Al-Ghazali and Ibn Taymiyyah and so on. Right. Um, so, the, yeah, um, and uh, it's... it's uh, there is this indigenous tradition, and this is, this is part of what some of these editors are at least doing. Some are much more deferential to, to West, the Western academic tradition, right. and others say, "Well, actually, no. We have people from our own heritage who, who do it very well." And Ahmed Shakir is a, is an excellent example that, that Shamsi discusses. Ahmed, sorry, discusses. Uh, Ahmed, so did, well, Ahmed Shamsi in this case, not Ahmed Shakir, of course. So Ahmed basically is, uh, you know, he exemplifies the sort of. Um, the actual, in some cases, the superiority of the method of classical philology in the Islamic tradition compared to the sorts of um, initiatives, as I recall, this is not something I've read in the last 24 hours, but as I recall in my first reading. And uh, and so, yes, I, I don't, for example, dispute that there wasn't a tradition of trying to, you know, I think he, he really um, does an excellent job in showing that Sha'arani's argument in Al-Mizan that I know through Kashf that all of the Imams had uh, arrived at the truth uh, and that they are all, obje- you know, in some sense, objectively true. Uh, you wouldn't use that term, but the point is you cannot have, um, you know, well, I guess there was a great discussion between the Muslim and the Masawiba in, in uh, you know, Sul Fiqh, but, you know, ostensibly you cannot rationally have two opposing positions as being true in an absolute sense. Um, yeah. You can say that, you know, these positions can be deduced from the texts, but they're, uh, you know, um, and, and I think that aspect of it is embedded and very important. You know, he describes the early debates as very intense in the legal schools, and that's how they generated yeah. knowledge. They found that through engaging in that kind of discussion, whereas the later post-classical tradition, as he portrays it, is one where it's basically authority, and, uh, you know, that is ultimately um, ratified through Kashf. So if you yeah. don't know, well, you can't verify my knowledge, but I'm telling you and you accept on my authority. It's kind of... Yes, which is, which is not to say that inspired role has no epistemological status at all among classical authors, right? but it's a recognition that those forms of authority, as you say, I mean, they really shut down an argument. And in order for scholarship to be possible, as Ahmed, uh, Ahmed said in, in his recent... Uh, piece on the Harvard Islamic Law blog, you need to have some kind of shared scholarly standards right. and uh, falsifiability in, in the sense that Popper discussed. It is really an important part of that, that universe of discourse. Without those shared standards, without the possibility of being proved wrong through argument and, and rational demonstration, uh, the rock is pulled out from, uh, from, from, beneath, uh, from beneath scholarship and, and has radical... Uh, and, and, and negative implications that, that Ahmed spells out in the book. Hmm. I mean, I think uh, the, again, um, and, and this is one of the areas where I've kind of expressed my, um, I, I mean, I'm not entirely sure what I think about a lot of this yet, but in a sense, uh, you know, the later tradition and the post-Akbarian Sufi tradition and so on, um, he says that that attitude starts to usurp the, you know, ground that was previously occupied by reason and rational argumentation. But as you say, you know, that's also present in the, you know, you, he mentions himself that, you know, Ghazali and the Munqid min al-Dalal mentions ultimately, I found, you know, satisfaction and, and ultimate sort of um, comfort in a sense in tasawwuf uh, rather than through mm. reasoned argumentation and so on. He also seems to suggest that uh, the uh, sort of letter that uh, Ibn Arabi writes to Ar-Razi does influence him to go in that sort of a direction a little, in his later writings. I don't know the chronology of Razi's writings, but you know that I find that fascinating. Um, yeah. That you know, pro- I just presumably the- them dunya edited by Ibn which is one of Razi's last texts, right. clearly shows this kind of Sufi inclination. Right, right. We should say something about Ibn Arabi. <laughs> Who, um, I always I'm loath to talk about him because he's a very difficult figure, of course. <laughs> but yes, but, yeah. but uh, Shams uh, Ahmed says very clearly he describes Ibn Taymiyyah's genealogical critique of Akbarian Sufism as compelling. So right. Ibn Arabi is essentially a neo-Platonist and kind of Islamic garb. Not not to simplify too much. I mean, Marx um, makes more or less the same argument, and I think yes, yes, and uh, of course, m- many people have, have have made the point, but Ahmed is demonstrating it in a 
in a particular right. particular compelling way. Right. Um, and I mean, as we we discussed in the in the episode on James Pickett's book, certain forms of scholarship, and of course Ahmed limits himself to, for, I think, very wisely to discussing uh, particularly the Arabophone context. Right. But it's clear that certain trends and styles of scholarship were pervasive in the post-classical era. Uh, Akbarian Sufism was certainly a big deal. Right. And uh, reading a particular set of texts that had been canonized, uh, whether it's Iji's um, Mawaqif uh, or the Hidayah, uh, in, in, in fiqh as well. Uh, and uh, again, narrow textual horizons. Now, Shamsky, I think, avoids making larger claims about, at least explicitly in my reading, uh, larger claims about post-classical Islam, uh, Islamic scholarship more broadly outside the Arabic-speaking world. Right. Uh, but it's clear to me the book has implications for how we think about post-classical Islamic scholarship in the Ottoman domain outside of the Arabic-speaking lands right. or in South Asia right. or in Central Asia, because, I mean, I don't work uh, really on uh, primary texts and manuscripts on Central Asia, for instance, but it's clear from reading books like uh, the, the the study by Nathan Spanos, like uh, James Pickett and many others, that the same styles of scholarship being cultivated in right. Cairo in the 17th century, also being cultivated in Central uh, Asia and and other parts of the Russian Empire uh, in the 19th and even into the into the 20th. Sorry, uh, sorry to interrupt you. Sometimes it seems to be through the transnational impact of journals like Al Manar, for example, as well, which seems to be subscribed to by a lot of people internationally. Yes. Um, now, one thing that I haven't mentioned uh, is the the book introduces much new material and new personalities, and it also engages in long-standing debates. Um, the debate about why exactly print was so slow to be adopted in uh, in the uh, Islamic world, and essentially the, the argument is about, uh, or the, the, the point Shamsi Ahmed makes uh, compellingly is, it's primarily about uh, the need. So you shouldn't assume the existence of the technology uh, itself is enough for it to be adopted. Uh, manuscript culture served perfectly well the rather limited number of persons, and he, he gives estimates in the tens of thousands, I think 40,000 people or more uh, may have been in, in the turn of the 19th century literate and interested in in, uh, in reading and copying books. So manuscript culture was able to serve those uh, that relatively small audience perfectly well. Of course, things transform when literacy becomes more common uh, right. to a large extent as a result of the state's attempt to expand and roll out primary and secondary education among right. its uh, its population, and these were really the consumers of this 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 new literature. The reading of public expands dramatically. The second, uh, I would say, major debate uh, Ahmed engages in, uh, among others, is um, the debate about the the so-called narrative of decline. Right. And he he anticipates this criticism of the book very clearly and. Um, he discusses the, the work of Khaled Rawaihib, among others. Right. Uh, but it's clear to me, based on, on his diction, the kinds of words he uses to describe this right. period and, and the scholarship that it produces, um, that it, I, it, it's, it's hard to, to see much redeeming, uh, many redeeming features. There are yes. exceptions he discusses, not like um, Shokani, for instance, and the Murtada Zabidi and others, and Hassan Latar. Examples of bibliophiles. Um, you know, Ibrahim Rani is one of the protagonists of Ruwehib's work, as, if I recall correctly. Yes, that's true. So he does. He is discussed at length in uh, Ruwehib's book on the 17th century. But in in Shamsi, in uh, Ahmed's account, he he's one of these exceptional. I mean, by any account, he's an exceptional figure. Yeah. Uh, but what distinguishes him from his peers is. Uh, when it comes to Ibn Taymiyyah, for instance, the extent to which he's willing to pursue insaf, you could say objectivity, as, as Ahmed translates it, which is, you know, he, he will actually go and try to find books by Ibn Taymiyyah and Ibn al-Qayyim and will base his judgment of those authors and their views on texts they actually produced, as opposed right. to relying, as is extremely common, uh, indeed the norm, in the post-classical period on second and even third-hand 
reference is not something that applies just to Bentimia, but um, knowledge of the classical tradition is often occurring. You know, it's mediated by uh, by other texts, right. and often in that process, uh, the understanding of these texts is distorted. Right. I mean, so this is one of the areas where I wonder if, and I just want to remind viewers, if you're interested, um, you know, we're, we would be more than happy to take some questions in the last 10, 15 minutes of this uh, discussion. But, um, you know, please do uh, feel free to, um, you know, send in your questions in the comments and we should be able to read them on the side. Um, this was one of the points where I wanted to sort of query um, sort of the the kind of, as you say, uh, you know, he in a sense is pushing back against a lot of the, pushing back against the decline narrative, right? Um, and I mean, not quite, I mean, he, he talks about, but people like Murtada Zabidi or Qurani or um, sort of the other chap you mentioned um, are not characteristic of the age, shall we say. Precisely. And this is where I wonder, I mean, there are so many dimensions to sort of historical and intellectual developments that could, could there be other ways of conceiving of these sorts of questions? Um, you know, he looks at scholasticism in the European tradition as a sort of yardstick for measuring. Uh, you know, what, what is it that transforms uh, within, you know, history and intellectual history? We kind of assume, you know, human beings are largely the same across time. What, what is it that, you know, causes certain trends to, you know, be particularly strong or weak in other contexts? Um, if you look at, for example, modern culture in the West, overwhelmingly the culture does not think back, at, you know, and preoccupy itself with its sort of roots in uh, a, a kind of invented Hellenic um, genealogy, Hellenic and Roman genealogy. Most people are quite, um, you know, provincial in a sense when we think about those sorts of questions. Even in scholarship, those areas of scholarship are in some sense under siege in the in a place like the UK. You know, the sciences are constantly being pushed and the humanities are very often, the departments are being shrunk and shut down and so on. Um, I, I wonder, sort of, there, there are so many other dimensions to this that we could potentially explain these, um, as well as, I mean, I think he's, Ahmed has done an excellent job in outlining and presenting a com you know, compelling set of arguments that future scholars will inevitably have to contend with very seriously. And but, it will be a point of departure for, for really any study of yeah. uh, modern Islamic thought. In many right. I mean, it, it is that that broad in its implications right. for the field. And, you know, we're, we're very grateful to Ahmed for this. Um, but yes, I, I do think that, uh, you know, a lot of cultures, you know, we when we look at Western culture, our horizons really go back to the Enlightenment, so, so to speak. And we don't really yeah. go much deeper than that, I think, in any serious way. Yeah. And, yeah, I mean, that's... Uh, is is that, yes. that in some kind of lack of creativity or a lack of sort of... Well, uh, I mean, I think... To some, I mean, everyone has a, has a different vision of the past, even the post-classical scholars, right. although their horizons were, comparatively speaking, narrow and did not go back many centuries... And there are particular reasons for that. Yeah. Uh, it just so happens that figures like Shokani were committed to a, a quite different uh, vision of history and of textual horizons. Part so of it just, has... Yeah, sorry, forgive me. I, I just wanted to add to this the counterpoint, which is someone like Nabulsi, who he presents this sort of fascinating passage out from, <laughs> which is really like, it's a bit outlandish to read. But if I recall correctly... But, uh, that's part of the course for, for post-classical Sufism. Very normal. He argues that the true knowledge is the knowledge of inspiration, and all of this you know, written knowledge and argumentation is all empty. In a sense, that's what he's arguing. That, yeah, although he himself was a prolific author, of course. Of course, but I mean that's one of the ironies. But a lot of what he does is esotericism and, and the sorts of things that you know uh, we might not find terribly appealing in our, uh, you know, at least the two of us, so to speak. But at the same time, the fact that he's arguing that so forcefully in that passage, in my mind just makes me wonder who's he arguing against he must have a lot of pushback to articulate it quite so forcefully and i i wonder mm. because he mentions for example you know the great legal mind of someone like ibn abidin you read someone like him and you don't find this right it's not really in my experience at least and maybe it's a illustration of my limited reading you know that's not quite so present he's a straightforward you know post-classical legal scholar so to speak well i mean Maybe I, I assume this is something that will 
change depending on the kinds of genres of texts one right. is looking at. Right. Uh, so law is an example where things are somewhat more limited, but these kind of epistemological claims, as Ahmed demonstrates, even creep onto into theological works. And, and Kalam had always privileged, you know, a very right. particular epistemology uh, that emphasizes certainty, yaqeen and qata, and all of these other technical terms, ilm daruri, and so on. Um, and even that becomes, to use a word that's quite topical, infected by <laughs> by the, this this vision of scholarship. Um, but to go back to Sokani and, and how, how him and, and figures like him are distinctive, um, I mean, they, they are committed, like post, the post-classical scholarly tradition, to a vision of tahqiq, but what exactly right. tahqiq signifies is quite different yeah. to figures like Shokani. For, for Shokani, Qurani is obedient, means going back to texts and uh, speak, you know, address, making uh, conclusions based on the sources, reasoned arguments, rejecting taqlid in its various incarnations. Of course, Shokani is quite an extreme example of the rejection of taqlid. Um, but tahqiq in, in, in the post-classical scholarly tradition in, in ways that's been addressed by Ruayhib in his works right. is uh, a really logic-topping, and, and Ahmed uses the word clever or cleverness right. to describe this kind of scholarship. Yes, it's, it's, um, it's entertaining and amusing and ingenious in, in, in its own way, uh, but not, not, uh, not, not fulfilling. I mean, um, so that's really good of you to use a term like this because it shows the subjectivity of it as well. I mean, it's not, it's not, you could say it's not productive, but again, what constitutes productivity in a given social uh, and context, right? I mean, of if course. You, yeah. I mean, fulfilling is, I think, again, it's, it denotes yes. our sensibilities in the present of what makes yeah, it. I mean, yeah, this is something that, that you know has come up in our in our previous conversations about this book. It is, and I think even from the acknowledgments, it's clear that some of Ahmed's readers disagreed with him quite quite profoundly. But for me, reading this book, which is at least my my take on it, is it's it's really the story of heroes and villains to some extent. It is impossible not to take a position on this transformation of Islamic scholarly culture. I mean. Do you think it was a good thing that so many um, authors devoted their time to writing on uh, <laughs> uh, numerology and ge geomancy and, uh, and all of these other occult yeah. sciences? Right. If, 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 I, the alphabet, for example. <laughs> yes. I, if you if you really see these, from my my very subjective perspective, if you really see these, I, I, of course, we have now very valuable. Uh, yeah. secondary scholarship on, on this work, and I, I would never belittle that important work that's being done. Uh, right. But in, in terms of the primary source themselves, I mean, if you see things like geomancy and um, these these kinds of works that you claim are inspired by the prophet in a waking vision, I mean, if, if you see these works as valuable, <laughs> then from my perspective, you're, you're wrong. Okay. Um, and you, I mean, you, I, for I, me, I, you have to take a side. You, you, you have to take a side. You, you can't kind of sit out on this. If you really just, think the, this kind of narrow textual horizon, I mean, we take this stuff for granted, but we, we, we have to acknowledge that there was a process um, and some people were marginalized. Some traditions and styles of scholarship were marginalized as a result of this process. Yes, in that sense, you could, you could say the book is somewhat polarizing. And I happen to, to agree with the, the side that Ahmed is in some sense, in some right. sense, advocating. I mean, I, you know, I uh, am always someone who's, uh, and you will know this from my previous discussions with you, uh, who kind of holds the distinction between the descriptive and the normative with a certain degree of suspicion, because I think the a lot of the fundamental assumptions that go into our descriptions will be normative assumptions inevitably in the way that, you know, I think people like Alistair McIntyre talk about the way in which traditions are are based ultimately on certain uh, unprovable uh, axioms very often. Uh, that's fine. Okay. I think where, you know, uh, when it comes to things like letterism and geomancy, yes, I mean, I think especially those of us who have, um, you know, been trained. The cult of saints, of course, which figures uh, prominently in the book. Sorry, occult, oh, sorry. The, the cult of saints, of course, which is discussed in the book. Now, now, these sorts of things, and 
uh, alongside that, I mean, I was also thinking the like there are a couple of very funny um, passages. He's quoting um, um of Ahmed Faris al-Shadiyak, if I recall correctly, where he basically reproduces a version of um, a, a passage. It's it's obviously done for effect. In the it's literature. a parody. It's, uh, it's, it's a, a parody. But, but I mean, in a sense, you know, I've heard similar complaints from when I was studying with uh, Sheikh Akram Nadwi, and he was talking about the way in which Alm al-Kalan is taught in the Indian subcontinent. Uh, he, he was complaining about the the sort of obscurity and spending. That, you know, there's this passage of he spent, you know, days and days uh, ruminating over a single sentence or something like that. Yeah. And and the thing is, uh, and, and people writing books which, you know, missing half of the alphabet to show off their vir- virtuosity and things like that. Yeah, it's cleverness. It's it's cleverness. And that, that the majority What I would say is that, you know, these illustrate a culture, you know, uh, you know, for someone like myself uh, living in sort of a post-colonial era where there's a sense of urgency that I feel about my own scholarship to a certain extent, you know, that drives it and motivates me in certain directions of research. Uh, in in some respects, I think, um, you know, in other people would feel very content with the sorts of uh, conditions that we live in and will not feel driven to do anything beyond demonstrating their own virtuosity. And I think, you know, that's part of what humans do when they feel that they can rest on their laurels. Uh, you know, we might not like it and think it's terribly creative or so on, but um, I, I do think that, Every culture will engage in that sort of behavior. And, you know, this is where, you know, again, I have to give Ahmed complete credit on uh, providing us with really a compelling narrative of how, you know, post-classical culture has been. But I would like to, you know, history is always a question of selection. And I wonder if the selection of authors, and he brought light some very, you know, unknown figures and very important figures, clearly, might have if if the selection was different might have given a slightly different narrative and that that will be something i i think about going forward but yes. i mean it's it's you know you can't it's it's not a book about post-classical scholarly culture and even if you were writing a whole book about post-classical scholarly culture it could only be impressionistic yeah and course. yes ahmed has privileged certain sources in his, in his account of the culture that frankly, makes it look <laughs> particularly bad. I think it happens to be a fair characterization. I mean, he's picking very, very important figures. Sha'arani is a Yes, yes. Figure. I mean, because like Sha'arani were extremely widely read, and there is, Mizan was extremely popular, and many of his other works, Nebulsi was was very important, and, and so on. Um, now, one, so, you know, he doesn't accept the decline narrative in, in its... Yeah. Orientalist sense with the capital O, so he does say, well, actually, that approach has has various shortcomings and that perspective is, is flawed. But one must not uh, overcompensate the sin of overcompensating. And I remember Oehib in the conclusion to his book uh, about the 17th century, if I remember rightly, because it's been a while since I read it, says that really what happens is Orientalists put forward this narrative, which is then internalized by Muslims. Shamsi shows, you know, from his discussions, I mean, many kind of autobiographies figure in the narrative memoirs, uh, including uh, the same crops up many times and so on. And this is not a kind of Orientalist invention. Uh, and certainly many, many Muslims themselves felt this way in the late 19th century before they knew any European languages or had contact with European scholars. And I want, I want to say that, um, yes, um, Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, it's okay. I mean, I, I wanted to maybe give a counterpoint. And I, again, I, I say this to a certain extent as playing devil's advocate because I, I think I do largely agree with much of, you know, what the book is arguing. In terms of, a, you know, a counterpoint uh, in favor of Al-Wahib here, thinking about the fact that, you know, yes, these are happening indigenously, but are they also a reflection of certain global historical trends um, that... Uh, of, you know, in some sense being driven by um, sort of the emergence of Europe in this really, you know, suddenly crashing on the global scene and forcing mm-hmm. people to think, well, maybe they've got something. Because, um, you know, you read whether it's Rafat Bahtawi or some of the other folks and the way in which they will write about Europe and you think, wow, that, you know, that's pretty Orientalist in a sense, right? You know, yeah. you're kind of privileging the... But, but at the same time, you know, um, 
and and I'm I'm interested in sort of these global historical trends. I need to read more about Whig history in particular. But you know, Whig historiography has been sort of shown up as being very problematic. A lot of these things that allowed Europe to emerge seem to be adventitious, and they seem to be sort of accidents of history. Uh, but it did put Europe in the driver's seat for a while, and that could have yeah. transformed the way in which Muslims saw themselves as well. So, yeah, you know, and not- it does. I mean, it's yeah. it's there, there are both elements. There is the impact of the West, and of course, we we live in it. Sad, or as did the the, the, the editors, and they they did uh, were influenced sometimes quite heavily by by this culture, particularly in producing critical editions. But it's not. You know, by by looking back at the classical period, they're able to mobilize. Uh, uh, you could say their own. I think uh, Ahmed describes it as a sort of indigenous modernity, right. Um, right? Tied to a particular religion of religious practice and the sorts of texts one should read and language and um, <laughs> language reform is, is very important. And journalism is a craft right. uh, in this period, um, which does make it uh, distinct and and fascinating. On objectivity again. Um, you know, we have our own indigenous, yeah. you know, I think from within the Islamic tradition, there are very clearly and obviously sense, senses in which there's something which is true and something which is false. In a sense, far more sort of robustly than has emerged in the kind of postmodern uh, traditions of Europe. Um, mm. Which So I'm not questioning the, the kind of underlying notion. It's just yeah. that term for me is so embedded within positivism of the last sort of two centuries or so. Um, Omar, I, I don't want to interrupt you too much and feel free to finish your point, but we do have a couple of comments from Ibad al-Rahman, who is kindly, um, you know, the Princetonians are outnumbering sort of the folks from Edinburgh at the moment. But Ibad, um, thank you very much for your question, and I'll just post it on the screen uh, very quickly. Um, Ibad asks, um, I wonder if the statement from the scholars arguing for the value of are really saying that Arguments and book learning have no value whatsoever and should be completely abandoned. I mean, Omar, you can do this, but it certainly seems... Yeah, so I mean, clear, clear, clearly they're not saying that uh, because the figures Ahmed discusses uh, are, in fact, very prolific. People like Abdul Wahab al-Sha'rani, Abdul Ghani Nabulsi, uh, Ibn Arabi, and even uh, these figures write a great deal. But there is clearly a privileging of and as the hierarchy of forms of knowledge. They're not saying um, book knowledge is useless. They engage yeah. in it themselves extensively. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but they, they are saying that it is inferior to, and not just in, you know, to inspired knowledge in various forms. Of course, all Muslims would recognize that you know, the, the, the Quran, which is the self-revelatory uh, uh, kind of uh, act of God, and a divine dis- uh, self-disclosure is uh, superior to, to other other kinds of knowledge. But um, when humans, other than prophets, are making this claim about themselves, you know, when people like Shawaliullah, who doesn't feature much in the book, but is in his field of Hermain, makes these kinds yeah. of extravagant yeah. claims about himself, yeah. when these figures are saying that, look, what I what I have was inspired or revealed to me by the prophet in a waking vision, what impacts does that have on, on, on scholarship and scholarly standards? Uh, for me and, and, and for Ahmed, as far as I can tell, quite a deleterious one. Um, and tahqiq, with this thing that they're committed to, for these figures means not kind of thorough research and investigation by looking at primary sources and going back to what authors originally said. It means either inspiration or kind of uh, yeah, grammatical and rhetorical and logical analysis, <laughs> which is quite quite fruitless to, compared to, say, someone like Shokani's vision of what that yeah. is, you know, rigorous research, um, read, going back and reading the text. I'm just wondering, um, as I recall, and, you know, I need to sort of reread Roy if it's been quite a while, but, you know, he was talking more about, um, you know, Tahqiq as being, you know, developing an in-depth understanding that allows you to yourself realize the force of an argument rather than... That's my recollection. Am I... Yes, but but what what does that amount to? Uh, I mean, Ahmed says says clearly it's it's really about logical and rhetorical and lexical analysis. It's how can I reconstruct this argument so it is a perfect syllogism? 
Right. That right. is a kind of derivative and secondary scholarship. It's not, in my reading, very. I mean, a lot of, a I mean, lot it of has its uses, but I mean, it really yeah. comes to dominate scholarship uh, in, in the post-classical period. A lot of people and, would say that about a lot of what we do in the humanities, unfortunately, in in the wider culture, <laughs> so to speak. I mean, okay. So let me. Um, and, and I should just correct, I mean, as I was um, passing that question on to you, I kind of said, yes, uh, Ahmed, more or less. I mean, my, my reading is that he did say it has no value, and that's wrong. What I meant to say is that, you know, in a sense, that privileging is very clear, as you said. Of yes. and, and this comes across in so many different sort of authors that he presents. Um, but I'd yes. like to see the counterpoint. What else, you know, what was the counterpoint within the wider post-classical culture that actually pushed back against it? Um, yeah, I... I do wonder about that. But I mean, so one argument I, of uh, just, uh, I mean, and this may have been maybe something I, I've mentioned to you before, and we'll get back to other questions in a moment. I understand we're eating up time. Uh, but I remember reading um, sort of uh, a, I think it was one of the Fatah of Abdul Hayy Laknawi, which had been edited by Abdul Fatah Abu And in the footnotes, Abdul Fatah Abu was, you know, someone was talking about Ilham, uh, you know, if you have Kashf, and, and on that basis, you do. Uh, Hukum Shari, so to speak. And he quotes um, the Hashia of on the Jalalain. I think it's Hashia Tsawi, so one of the post classical authors yeah, on the name. And um and the person says, you know, that is really legitimate to to do to use actually it was for Tasih and Tadaif of Hadith. You can do Tasih and Tadaif of Hadith on the base of Kashf. And you know, Abdul Fatah even Ibn Taymiyyah accepts to some extent a role for inspired forms of knowledge in, in legal argument. But for him it's it's how to arbitrate between two equally strong, objectively speaking, two equally strong arguments. So it has a very limited role. Now that kind of very closely and narrowly delimited function right. you know, massive it's replaced massive. in the post classical period by by it broadens out essentially. We, we should take more questions. What's interesting in, in what I'm uh, mentioning, and the thing is, this is Ashul uh, Masail or something like this of Abdul uh, Hayy al is that Abu Ghudda basically hits the roof uh, when he reads this. He's saying, who on earth ever permits the use of to do Tasheeh and Tadaif, or something, words to that effect. And, you know, what's um, what's interesting is there's a book coming out by Ahmad Hamda, which is uh, Traditionalism and uh, I forget the other aspect of the title, um, but you know he'll be talking about Abdul Fattah Abu as a characteristically traditional figure who was you know this major enemy of uh, people like Albani. You know Albani really attacked him quite a bit, and so you know in our own time it's interesting to think about how tra traditionalism as a continuation of classical Islam is is sort of. Oh yes, absolutely, yeah. and I think something that one gets very clearly from Ahmed's book is a sense of how. Well, the playing field just changes the, everything, standards and, 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 and arguments right. are radically transformed, including those who claim to be advocates of the post-classical tradition. I mean, right. their tradition and their horizons have been transformed, perhaps in ways they would not even acknowledge right. uh, by this process described so well by Ahmed. Thank you. Barakallah fikum, Omar. I just um, wanted to uh, give some more airtime to one, I think, a couple of other points. So you. Yusuf al-Afifi, and then I'll get back to Ibad in just a moment. So Yusuf al-Afifi's comment is the post-classical tradition did not ignore Ibn Taymiyyah, a glance at Hanbali scholarship, until the modern period is sufficient to show this. Okay, uh, for that reflection. I don't know how much uh, And he was an important jurist uh, in the Hanbali school, though his relationship with the school was complex. Yeah. But were his views marginalized, generally speaking? Uh, yes, I think it's fair to say that, and it's I, I think it has been demonstrated by people like Ruwayhib and indeed others. Now, for me, that's um, <laughs> that's actually a failing of the post-classical tradition. It's not a good thing that this uh, very rich and and um, enriching voice was was sidelined. Right. So, um, okay. So, I'm just going to throw in Yusuf uh, Afifi, just a follow-up in a sense is who are the advocates of the post-classical tradition? Um, and thank you, uh, someone by the name of Dio Bandit, I forget who that is actually, um, <laughs> Salafism, giving the title Salafism, Traditionalism, Scholarly Authority in Modern Islam. This is Ahmad Hamda's book. Excellent. But, and we all look forward to that book and Salah will have an episode uh, on it. 
Inshallah. Um, but yes, uh, just uh, plug advocates of post-classical uh, tradition uh, for use of What is that today or in the 19th century? Yeah, it's not a terribly clear question. I, I think, I mean, if I understand you correctly, uh, the use of it's you're basically asking who who are the villains in a sense. And I think we're thinking about people like Sha'rani, people like um, Abdul Ghani in the you know, a host of figures, uh, people inspired by the Akbari tradition. Fascinatingly enough, even Shawaliullah, even though he pops up just in small moments. But I also think that illustrates something very important, which is a lot of these tensions, and this is uh, part of the Akbarian tradition, they sit uh, as creative tensions, being, um, sort of like uh, within the same person, you have the tendencies of both what would be considered reform in our time and the tendencies towards valorizing the soul and Mukashafa and these sorts of things. And I think, you know, that's that's part of this package as well. Um, yeah, Omar, feel free to add and then and we'll I go even, um, because Dioband from the outset uh, acknowledges uh, Ibn Taymiyyah and uh, Ibn Arabi as great scholars, but and and if you I, I just examined the thesis recently on on early Dioban and figures like Gengohi are very mm-hmm. interesting. Now to some extent this may be because they lacked proper access to Ibn Taymiyyah's works. Mm-hmm. One of the interesting points Ahmed makes in the books is that even uh, in in Central Arabia the the Wahhabis of Najd clearly did not enjoy a very uh, expansive uh, access to Ibn Taymiyyah's work. So right. uh, the point's been made again, but is demonstrated here. Uh, well, is that if, th- th- there was focus in, in Central Arabia on a particular aspect of Ibn Taymiyyah's uh, oeuvre right. and 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 uh, his agenda, which was a, a much broader one, in fact. Right. So I'm just going to, I mean, um, just finally on Abad Rahman's point, uh, second, uh, which was uh, adding to what Omar said. Uh, so this is more or less comment, I suppose. Imam Alusi is, for example, uh, for example, in his travelogue, and Abad is doing his PhD on Alusi. We really look forward to that. Um, so in his travelogue from Baghdad to Istanbul, complains about what he sees as a as a, a lowering of the standards in scholarship among the Ummah. Yes, and in, in the book, of course, uh, more than one Alusi figures. Right. I, mostly it's a discussion of Mahmoud Sukril Alusi, uh, but they're all of Baghdad, but there's also uh, the, the, the grandfather Mufassir and Nu'man, uh, 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 the author of Jala al-Aynayn. Right, right. Uh, so all of those are discussed in the book. I mean, it's, it's a very kind of rich cast of characters. Right. Um, and, but there is, there is a clear overall narrative. Right. Uh, and it's a book I, and it's, it's, it's a compelling read and one I enjoyed tremendously. As did I. I mean, it's it, it, it's it's well written and, and and sort of it, it it's very smooth read in my experience as well. Yeah, um, Amar, uh, uh, we've more or less come to a close. So perhaps you can sort of give us a taste of what to expect next week, inshallah. Sure. Well, <laughs> uh, in the spirit of Ahmed's wonderful book, I shall be talking about a text that has only quite recently been edited and published. I do not have it in hard copy, but I have a printout of the PDF, so I, right. I can hold that up. So <laughs> so I realize, oh, yes. Kitab al-Maqalat. Uh, uh, but anyway, this is the Kitab al attributed to the, the major Mu'tazili theologian and the Sheikh of al-Ash'ari, Abu Ali al-Jubba'i. And I, I would like to thank uh, Zakaria al-Hubba for uh, sending me this, this text. It was one of the greatest um, gifts I've ever received, and it was published, uh, I think, just before the lockdown, perhaps, of course, because, you know, none of us have been able to go to Turkey. It's been a bit hard to access, but it's a fascinating and very early text. So, as Ahmed says in the book, you know, all the time these 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 uh, early texts are being recovered and edited, and it's, an ex- you know, we still live in a world that has been deeply shaped by the developments discussed in that book. And, and I, right. I think, and I'm sure you agree with Sam, we owe these figures a, a tremendous debt of uh, gratitude. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, uh, when does Jubati die in the Hijri calendar, if I recall correctly? So three or three. Three, one, three. So it's, it's attributed to him, but it's certainly a text of the third century right. based on the authorities he cites. It's, it's probably his, uh, it seems. Right. Right. Well, I mean, you know, we're working in the fields of scholarship and we all recognize how we stand on the shoulders of giants. Um, and, uh, you know, Alhamdulillah, it's uh, it, I think we are deeply indebted to 
all the figures in my sort of humble estimation, uh, all the figures who've come before us, including those who we may look at somewhat askance, so to speak. And, um, uh, you know, I, I also wanted to conclude by, you know, uh, Mamun Abdullah gives salam, so wa alaikum salam, inshallah. Um, and uh, we look forward to having people join us next week. Um, but Jazakum khairan Omar, it's really always illuminating having a chat with you. And uh, we had the unusual situation of having you uh, sort of uh, record from home this week. So we got a glimpse of your wonderful library in the back. Um, but uh, inshallah, uh, next week we expect we'll be back in the office uh, for your, in your case, inshallah. And uh, we look forward to people joining us then. And um, uh, and apologies for any of the comments that have come in a bit on the last minute that we haven't gotten to. But uh, please join us next week as we discuss, um, you know, in, uh, what we believe to be Jubba'i's al-maqalat. Al um, and until then, assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh.